This is episode 158 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled Studs Turkle and Working. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. Studs Terkel is practically synonymous with Chicago, uh, like some of his cohorts, Mike Royko, or less so, Paul Harvey. And let's look at those three guys in reverse order. Paul Harvey was a radio reporter born in 1918, and he died in 2009 at the age of 90. He had a daily radio program whose signature opening went something like, Hello, Americans. This is Paul Harvey. Stand by for news. And then he would also offer up what he would call the rest of the story, where something in the first part of the story would usually turn out to be something quite different. And since he was a conservative, you can imagine that sometimes what came out in the second part of the story would more reinforce his interpretation of events than how it had first been reported. I remember him because when I would stay home sick from school, my mother would listen to him at lunchtime while she did the ironing. His show was on uh, every day at noon. And I remember he had this really strange sign-off, and he would say, This is Paul Harvey. Baudette? And I think I was an adult before I learned that that last part, which I never quite understood what those words were, actually were good day. Mike Royko is different. He was a beloved newspaper columnist in Chicago, really just a uh, staple of the newspapers there. Funny, observant, and vastly entertaining. He was a huge Cubs fan. He was born later than a Harvey and Turkle in 1932, and He actually won a Pulitzer in 1972, but he died, uh, sadly, at the age of 64 from a brain aneurysm. Studs Terkel was a Chicago broadcaster, author, and actor, and he's who we'll be talking about today. He was born in 1912, and he used to say, I came up the year the Titanic went down. The weekday daily Studs Terkel program aired on WFMT Chicago for 45 years. Can you imagine? And he interviewed all kinds of famous people, Martin Luther King, Leonard Bernstein, Mort Saul, Bob Dylan, Alexander Fry, Dorothy Parker, Tennessee Williams, Gene Shepard, Frank Zappa. The list can just go on and on, as you can imagine, for 45 years. He got his start with people when he was a kid. His parents ran the Wells Grand Hotel, which was a rooming house where all kinds of people came through. And nearby and across the library was a park called Bug House Square, which was home to a lot of soapbox orators. 
And Turkle said later, I doubt whether I learned very much there. Uh, One thing I know, I delighted in it. Perhaps none of it made any sense, save one kind, sense of life. He got a JD degree from the University of Chicago, uh, but took a job writing and acting with the Works Progress Administration instead of going to practice law. With the age of television in the early 50s, he created Studs Place, which was a TV drama about a diner in Chicago, kind of a dive, and all the interesting people that would pass through there. It was considered one of the jewels in the legendary Chicago School of Television, and it was where a lot of listeners and watchers discovered Studs. He wasn't just an interviewer. He was quite a character, arms waving, yelling. Uh, He was engaged, you might say, in conversation. When that show got canceled, he was unhappy. He complained later that the commercialization of television forced his show and others from that Chicago school off the air. Also, at that time, McCarthyism was in full force, and Studs was outspoken politically and did have a tendency to err on the liberal side. It's Probably worth pointing out that Paul Harvey himself was friends with both uh, Joe McCarthy and Edgar J. Hoover, so pretty significant difference in their politics. Turkle said that he was blacklisted during the McCarthy era because he says, I took certain positions on things and never retracted. I signed many petitions that were for unfashionable causes and never retracted. After his show got canceled, he had a hard time finding work and kind of subsisted on uh, some speaking fees and writing fees. His wife, Ida, uh, made enough money at that point to keep the family afloat. He had married her when he was just 27 and stayed married to her until her death in 1999. And Turkle said that when they got together, she made a lot more money than he did. He said it was like dating a CEO. I borrowed 20 bucks from her for our first date, and I never paid her back. So after his TV era, in 1952, he got hired at uh, WFMT and began a morning radio show where he interviewed people and talked about really everything, but especially music. He interviewed a lot of jazz artists and published his first book, Giants of Jazz, in 1956. Then in 1967, he published his first collection of oral histories, which is really what he became known for, and that was called Division Street America, and he used Division Street in Chicago as kind of a prototype for America. It told stories in their own words of businessmen, prostitutes, Hispanics, blacks, working people. It won rave reviews and became a bestseller. And that was the theme that Studs would use over and over again. In 1985, he published The Good War, an oral history of World War II. He won a Pulitzer for that book. Then Hard Times, an oral history of the Great Depression. And then in 1974, his book Working, people talk about what they do all day and how they feel about what they do, which eventually we'll talk about today. He was a character. He got his nickname Studs. He was born Lewis. He got his uh, nickname from a character that he was playing in a play. And he had a character's wardrobe, red checked shirt, red tie, uh, gray trousers, and blue blazer. 
And some people said that he always looked kind of ratty and a little bit frazzled, like he was a boxing promoter. He liked smoking, so he was often shown chomping on a cigar, kind of a larger-than-life kind of character, but intensely interested in other people and an excellent listener. He was opinionated and loud and funny, but he had deep feelings for everyday people. His obituary in the Chicago Tribune uh, stated, the human drama was his great theme. Conversation was his vocation and avocation. His brimming curiosity and, quote, feeling tone, unquote, as he called it, carried him into the hearts of the world. He bent a listening ear in Europe, South Africa, as well as all over the United States, and of course, Chicago. Thousands of celebrated names spilled from his interview tapes. But just as important, studs sought the daydreams and 3 a.m. truths of many a person who never made a headline. They were all somebodies to him. Turkle looked down on none of them. He himself said, I became one of them in a way. And in my words, he was a real populist and some would say a terrible ham. Here's a bit about him talking about working. I try to explore what I feel is uncharted territory. Example, work. Thousands of copies. Duplicate pages exact and perfect to the tiniest detail. Thousands of copies. Duplicate pages exact and perfect to the tiniest detail. Work is the prime impulse of human beings. What is the attitude of people toward their jobs? So I try to find people of all sorts of occupations, all sorts of work. What is your day like? Start from the beginning, the moment you wake up. For example, in the book Working, there's this funny guy. He's a meter reader, a gas meter reader, the one who comes in with a flashlight in the basement. There are two things on his mind, he's a meter reader's mind, dogs and women. And the first is the reality, and the second is the fantasy. So I say, what about women? Well, you know, a man's away, and once in a while, you get this feeling, you know. It's summertime, and there's a young wife, and she's getting the sun, lying on a blanket, lying on her stomach, you know, because she's got the bikini, but that top part is unbuttoned. She's lying on her stomach, you understand? So I creep along very slowly with the flight, and I holler, Gas man! She turns around. Well, you know... I get bawled out an awful lot. She says, what do you mean? I get, I get bawled out an awful, but you know what? It makes the day go faster. <laughs> and I thought, makes the day go faster. Studs was an incredibly productive person, not just because he lived until he, the age of 96, juggling radio shows, books, and public appearances. He was a big baseball fan like Royco, a big uh, Cubs fan. And he got to play a newspaper reporter, Hugh Fullerton, in the 1988 John Sayles film, Eight Men Out, which is about the Black Sox scandal of 1919. If you haven't seen that movie, I highly recommend it. In 1992, Studs published the book Race, What Blacks and Whites Think and Feel About the American Obsession, Interesting title in this uh, moment. And in 1995, Coming of Age, The Story of Our Century by Those Who've Lived It. And then in 1997, My American Century. He won a ton of awards besides the Pulitzer, uh, the National Humanities Medal from President Clinton, 
a National Book Foundation uh, 1997 Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters. And this is wild. In 2006, he received the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Dayton Literary Peace Prize, the first and only annual U.S. Literary Award recognizing the power of the written word to promote peace. How cool is that? He was also inducted into the Hall of Fame of Black Writers, even though he wasn't black. Can you imagine what a kerfuffle that would cause today? His wife died in 1999, and they had been married for over 60 years, and he took that very hard. And he said at the time, who's going to be there to laugh at my jokes, at those jokes I've told a million times? In his last public appearance in 2007, he said he was, quote, still in touch, but ready to go. His memoir, Touch and Go, was published in 2007, and he said at the time that would be his last book, but in fact, when he died, he was on the verge of releasing what did end up to be his last book, P.S., Further Thoughts from a Lifetime of Listening. In a late interview, the interviewer uh, described him as sitting in the sun-soaked living room of his house. The place was, as always, a wonderful mess of papers, tapes, books, letters, photos, and visitors that so pleasantly cluttered his life. If only I could be so lucky to end up that way. And he said at the time uh, about his epitaph, he said, I want my epitaph to be, Curiosity did not kill this cat. He died in 2008, as I said, at the age of 96, uh, very much a contemporary of Paul Harvey, actually, who died in 2009 at age 90. So the two of them uh, overlapped essentially their whole lives. Ida and Studs had one son, Dan, who commented when Studs died, my father lived a long, satisfying, and fulfilling, but tempestuous life. It was a life well-lived. And Chicago Mayor Richard M. Daley said, Studs captured the eloquence of the common men and women whose hard work and strong values built the America we enjoy today. All right, let's talk about working. People talk about what they do all day and how they feel about what they do. I just want to read you uh, some of the blurbs about this book because I do think they give us quite a sense of the importance of the book. Uh, the Los Angeles Times said, A deep penetration of American thought and feeling, a celebration of individuals, a masterpiece. The New York Times Book Review said, an enormous amount of exciting material, an incredible abundance of marvelous beings, a very special electricity and emotional power. Now remember that most of this book is just people describing their jobs in their own words, right? Newsweek said, an impressive achievement, a very valuable document. No journalist alive wields a tape recorder as effectively as, as Studs Terkel. Wall Street Journal, remarkable, the range is enormous, work is the theme, and we learn a lot about these trades. Business Week, splendid, important, rich, and fascinating. The people we meet are not digits in a poll, but real people with real names who share their anecdotes, adventures, and aspirations with us. Chicago Daily News, the real American experience, the poetry of real people, the hardness of real lives, a grand subject and a splendid book. 
and Boston Globe said, a magnificent book, a work of art. To read it is to hear America talking. I've got some excerpts for you here. The first one is from Frank Decker. He is a trucker who delivers loads to the Gary, Indiana steel mills, uh, fairly close to my stomping ground. So this one uh, was meaningful to me. And he wrote, a stop at the Wisconsin state line, a place to eat. Big truck stop there. Maybe meet a bunch of that that have been in the steel mill all night. Coffee up. Tell all the stories about how badly you're treated at the steel mill. Tell about the different drunks that try to get under your wheels. Then move towards your destination and make the delivery at 7 o'clock in the morning. We're talking about 13 hours already. My routine would be to drop two days like this and not come home. Halfway back from Milwaukee, take a nap in the cab at a truck stop. Use the washroom, the facilities. You call your dispatcher and Gary, wash up, get rejuvenated, live like a human being for a day, come back to the mill after supper, and be off again. Vincent Mayer talks about uh, being a policeman. Again, this seemed relevant in this moment. To me, when I was a kid, the policeman was the epitome, not of perfection, was a good and evil in combination, but in control. He came from an element in the neighborhood, and he knew what was going on. To me, a policeman is your community officer. He's your officer friendly. He's your clergyman. He's your counselor. He's a doctor to some. Mr. Policeman, my son just fell and bumped his head. Now all we are is a guy that sits in a squad car and waits for a call to come over the radio. We've lost complete contact with the people. They get the assumption that we're going to be called to scene for one purpose, to become violent, to make an arrest. No way I can see that. I'm the community officer. They've taken me away from the people I'm dedicated to serving, and I don't like it. So remember this book came out in 1974. And then here's an excerpt from Joe and Susie Haynes. They come from the coal mining country in eastern Kentucky. Joe, you're in one of the richest areas in the world and some of the poorest people in the world. There's about 28 gas and oil wells. They have one here. They claim at least a $3 million a year gas well. One of the men that works for the gas company said they valued it at $25 million, that one well. They offered a woman $75 on the farm that the gas wells laid on for destroying half an acre of her place to set that well up. They can do that legally because they have the mineral rights broad from deed. 1889, my grandfather sold this, everything known, and that might be found later, gas, oil, clay, stone. My grandfather and grandmother signed in with two X's. They accepted the farming rights. Company can dig all the timber, all your soil off, uncover everything just to get their coal. Go anywhere they want to. Drill right in your garden if they want to. They took bulldozers and they tore the top off the ground. I couldn't plow it or nothing where they left it. Came through right by that walnut tree. I've got corn this year, first year I raised it. About four years since they left. Nice corn over there. I had to move a lot of rock where they took the bulldozers. They threatened my wife with trespassing here because she called up the water pollution man the gas and oil company did. If the oil runs down this creek, it's kill the fish and everything in it. And I had a lot of chickens to die, too, from drinking that oil. Susie. 
When they come through with those bulldozer and tear it up like that, the dirt from it runs down to our bottom land and it ruins the water. Our drinking water gets muddy, so we don't have much of a chance, don't look like. Our boy in the Navy, when he comes home, he says all he can see is the mountain tore up with bulldozers. Even the new roads they built, there's debris on it, and you can't hardly get through it sometimes. I guess that's what they send our boys off to fight for, to keep them a free country, and then they do to us like that. Nothing we can do about it. He said it was worse here than it was over in Vietnam. Four times he's been to Vietnam. He said this was a worse tore-up place than Vietnam. He said, what's the use of going over there and fighting and then having to come back over here and pay taxes on something that's tore up like that? Maybe we should go read some of Working when we start to get critical of people in Trump counties. The foreword for the last edition was written in 2004 by New York Times writer Adam Cohn, and I thought it had some interesting observations. One is about Babe Sicoli, who, like so many people, takes so much pride in her work. He describes her as, she's a supermarket checker for nearly 30 years, proud of her dexterity and moving items along the conveyor belt. If asked, she'll do a little dance, showing how she hits the keys on the cash register with one hand, pushes the food along with the other, and intermittently whacks the conveyor belt button with her hip. She knows what everything costs. The price list on the register is, she says, only for the part-time girl. And this so resonates with me of people develop such pride in their work. I just love watching people in roles like that where they really show off what they can do. There's a guy at the drugstore that I go to who likes to run both cash registers at once. And he's just like this, you know, blur of movement between the two. He just really gets off on on, on that. You know, it's it's fun for him and it's efficient and You know, he enjoys the challenge. It's fun for the customers, too. I guess that's human nature, right? But that's why it hurts me when I hear people say things like just a construction worker or just a housewife. Anyway, so Adam Cohen says, uh, There are disgruntled workers in working who feel caged in by their jobs, but many others exult in their ability to demonstrate their competence, to show off their personality, and to perform. Three decades later, we're caught up in what a recent book dubbed the new ruthless economy. High-tech and new management styles put workers on what the author Simon Head calls digital assembly lines with little room for creativity or independent thought. There have been substantial productivity gains, but those gains have not found their way to paychecks. Not surprisingly, a study last fall by the conference board found that less than 49% of workers were satisfied with their jobs, down from 59% in 1995. When working was written, these trends were just visible on the horizon. An editor says, Most of us, like the assembly line worker, have jobs that are too small for our spirit. Jobs are not big enough for people. When America begins to pay attention to its unhappy workforce, and eventually it must, working will still provide important insights with its path-breaking explorations of what Mr. Turkle describes as the extraordinary dreams of ordinary people. A musical was developed from the book called Working, of course, and it was recently put on in Massachusetts in 2019. And so a modern-day review said, Working offers an unflinching, eloquent, poignant picture of America. 
and the last numbers of working cut to the bone about what makes work in America uniquely American, the belief that hard work will make it better for the next generation. Songs were contributed by Lin-Manuel Miranda and originally several by James Taylor, brother trucker and mill worker, both of which he put on his album Flag. And mill worker has been covered by Bette Midler, Emmylou Harris, Pearl Jam's Eddie Vedder, Bruce Springsteen, Jennifer Warrens, and Francis Cabrell. And it's worth checking out their versions. They're all very interesting. James Taylor said he wasn't inspired by any particular character in Stud Turkle's book, but his biographer said that the lyrics were somewhat based on the words of a union organizer who was interviewed in the book. So I should say Millworker represents the thoughts of a woman who is regretting the choices that she made in her life of getting involved with a drunkard and having three children and now being stuck to a job in a factory, uh, stuck to her machine. And here are some nearly final lyrics for you. But it's my life has been wasted and I have been the fool to let this manufacturer use my body for a tool. I'll ride home in the evening, staring at my hands, swearing to my sorrow that a young girl ought to stand a better chance. So may I work the mills just as long as I am able and never meet the man whose name is on the label. I'll let Emmy Lou close out the ending here. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes airing on Tuesday and Friday and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. 
And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.